Hello and welcome to the Deeper Eye podcast. I am Lara Ferris, your host. For many years, I have been passionate about self-improvement. Through this, I have met the best specialists in their field who have given me tools and the courage to pursue a new path. The purpose of this podcast is to share with you everything I have learned through the conversations I have had with these amazing people. I hope these conversations will impact your life as they did to mine. Today, my conversation is with Andrew Wallace. Andrew, as many of you know, is a consultant who specializes in business transformation. He has been my mentor and my teacher for over seven years, and he is the founder of School of Business Alchemy. I have had Andrew so many times help me understand the way you can reach a deeper side of yourself and live from a much more peaceful place. And today we are going to discuss the seven spiritual laws of success, the book that has been translated in many, many languages from Deepak Chopra. And I think it was extremely important for me to discover this book thanks to Andrew's recommendation. And I was really pleased that he accepts to have a conversation with me to speak about all these laws. We have a series of seven podcasts and we're starting today with the first law, the law of pure potentiality. Good afternoon, Andrew. So exciting to be with you again. This time we got inspired by this book you recommended for me to read, The Seven Spiritual Laws of Success by Deepak Chopra. After reading this book, I have to say, Andrew, I just felt like I found a pot of gold and I would really like to share all of the things that I've understood after reading this book. And as always, I really benefit a lot from talking to you about the insights I've had, the understanding I've had, because by discussing them with you, one, always why worry is to make sure I understood them properly. I'm using them properly because it's one thing to understand and have an insight. And I feel it's another complete different things to use them correctly and properly. And I was just wondering if we could start by you sharing in general the overall of these seven spiritual laws. And then maybe over the next seven episodes, we can dig into each law separately. Wonderful. Wonderful. Okay. Thank you, Lara. So it's interesting that this book was first published, I think, in about 1996. And it's been through about 15 or 16 reprints. And it's probably sold millions, if not 10 million copies worldwide. So it's a very simple, very easy to read, very profound book. And we're going to take each of these laws in turn, starting today with the first law. But before we do that, I think there's two things. Firstly, Deepak Chopra, who is known by many people, calls these laws the seven spiritual laws of success. Mm -hmm. And in the West, 
we tend to think of success as something very aligned with our career or with money or with wealth or with security. Whereas in the East, particularly in India, success has a much, much wider application. Success means health and life and family and everything else. So we're going to talk about this in terms of a successful life, being a successful man, successful father, successful lover, successful in my career, etc., etc. It's a very wide application. And I think uh, in conversation, Lara, I suggested that these principles, these seven laws, uh, really provide a map for living. So this, what we're going to explore over the next seven sessions is really this is the map to help us live a very fulfilled, very fulfilling and joyful yeah. life. That's the point of this. It's like the roadmap for life. Absolutely. It's like gold. Yeah, exactly. The second thing I wanted to say is that the universe operates according to various scientific laws. So scientists and physicists study a number of laws which are given as holding the universe together. So, for example, the most obvious is the universal law of gravitation or gravity. We all operate in the world on an assumption that gravity exists. Yes. And there's a number of other laws like the theory of relativity, Heisenberg's uncertainty principle, and of course, Isaac Newton's laws, which still operate and are embedded at the heart of science. And, and what I want to suggest at the outset is these seven laws that we're going to explore together and discuss together have the same traction, the same application as the law of gravity. So when we begin to understand them, I mean, you or I, Lara, and nobody else listening to this, we can't see gravity. You know, we can't see Newton's laws of motion. So these are things that are behind the manifest universe that we take for granted. So that's the nature of what we're going to be talking about over the next several weeks. And the first law, as you know, is what Deepak Chopra calls the law of pure potentiality. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. Yeah. And it's no accident that this is the first yeah. law. It's really important to ground ourselves in this idea. And essentially, this law has two aspects to it. So the first aspect is the polarity between potential and actual, potentiality and actuality. And one of the first people to talk about this was actually Aristotle in the Western tradition in 300 BC. And he highlighted the reality that potentiality is far more powerful than actuality because once something's become actual, it ceases to have any uh, potential. It is what yeah. it is. So one of the best ways of explaining this is that if you have a painting by Rembrandt, Rembrandt happens to be one of my favourite artists, a beautiful Rembrandt painting, 
and it might be worth millions of pounds and it's utterly beautiful. But once it's a Rembrandt, it cannot be anything else but a Rembrandt. The same with a Picasso, the same with any other painting. Whereas if you have a blank canvas, then the blank canvas can be anything you want it to be. So in that sense, it's far more full of potential than a Rembrandt or a Picasso or a Matisse or whatever. In exactly the same way, if you've got a pile of wood and you create a chair or a picture frame or something out of that wood, then once it's a chair, all it can be is a chair. So as long as it's a wood, then it can be many, many different things. It's interesting. Just one thing comes to mind. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I just feel like like us, like a human being, like we are all born a blank white canvas and life just happens to us. And then we become either a Picasso or a Rembrandt or whichever <laughs> uh, painting. And same as the chair, sometimes we find ourselves, we are like this chair and it takes destruction of this chair to be able to become something else with that wood. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely right. We have to dismantle the chair and then reuse the wood. That's a great analogy. I would just comment on, I don't think we're actually born as a blank canvas because I think when we're born, there's multi-generational patterns and influences on our life. But nonetheless, yeah, we do learn things. So there's one other way into this that I'd like us to think about because... What scientists tell us, and you and I, Lara, we had a a podcast, I think a few years ago, on what I call the quantum field. And we talked about how scientists tell us that 98% or more of what is, is space. Mm -hmm. That what exists in the world is less than 2%. And black holes and space make up more than 98% of reality. And so the importance of that for this discussion is the manifest world, which consists of planet Earth and all of the animals and human beings and companies, Apple, Amazon, Shell, BP, all of this is less than 2% of what is. And at any moment in time, all of that manifest world at some point didn't exist. So there's a moment when Amazon, Apple didn't exist. There's a moment when you didn't exist. There's a moment when I didn't exist. And then at some moment in time, all of those things come into existence. And one of the ways in which different traditions have talked about that, particularly in the Vedic tradition, the Vedic philosophy, in Hinduism, in Buddhism, They talk about the manifest world and the unmanifest or the latent world. The unmanifest is the non-existent world, which is yet to come into existence. And that is what we are referring to as pure potentiality. In exactly the same way, the Buddhists say, particularly in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition, they say nothing is more powerful than something because everything comes out of nothing. And even based on scientific theory, one of the laws of science is what they refer to as Big Bang. 
And Big Bang was the moment when the cosmos or the universe was created out of nothing. So this is something that is very familiar to scientists and physicists and people who study the basic building blocks of the universe. Mm -hmm. And what we're talking about here is that behind the manifest world, behind the world of actuality, there is a world that is considerably larger, considerably greater, 98% to 2%, and very much more powerful. Mm -hmm. And most of us are living our lives based on the outer world, the manifest world, which is relatively small, but we're very caught up in the drama and the traumas of that relatively small world. And the first law says that if we base our life on pure potentiality, then we can create any life we want. And it's from this place of pure potentiality that the manifest is created. And this takes us to our second point or second aspect of the law of potentiality, which is the polarity between the inner and the outer. And this is something, Laura, you and I, we've we've talked about endlessly. We've, We've done many discussions based on this. And in fact, one of the themes of the last two or three years through all of our talks has been this shift from reliance on the outer to reliance of the inner. And that was uh, predicated upon COVID-19, where we got caught up in the outer drama rather than anchoring ourselves in the inner reality. And Deepak Chopra explains this very well. He talks about self-referral and object referral. So object referral is when we live our life based on the outer world, the manifest world of objects. And one of the things that I think is fairly obvious to all of us is that if we live our life based on outer reality then we experience rejection, we experience disappointment, we experience frustration. And everything in the outer world is essentially fear-based. So we we live in fear, we have insecurity about what is going to happen next. And of course, linked to that fear-based way of living is the concept of control. So the mind is constantly seeking to control outer reality. If we just did a little bit of field research and we gave ourselves a few hours of watching our mind, we would see how much of our energy and how much of our time goes into trying to control events that are happening or are about to happen. We constantly spend our time negotiating, say, I don't want this to happen, I want that to happen, or if this happens. And I imagine that that is very familiar to anyone listening. And it's what many people call the life of the ego. So it would be synonymous, in my view, the outer world, the manifest world, 
object referral is the world of the ego. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? It makes sense. I just was thinking while you're talking that when you listen and you understand these laws, and let's just focus on the first one, I personally feel there is something you have to accepting before you are able to understand and practice this law. This we talked about in several of the talks you have here for me. And, you know, you talked about acceptance. You talked about non-judgment. You talked about accepting self, you know, all of this. Don't you feel it's essential to be willing to enter that phase before you understand these laws and you are able to practice them? Well, Yes and no. I think you're absolutely right, Lara, that acceptance is key to any life well lived. And one of the crazy things that we get into is arguing with and trying to control what is the way life arises. And this leads to a lot of frustration and actually a lot of misery. All, all misery could be traced back to trying to control or change what already is. So in that sense, it it is critical. But in terms of the first law, I think that all that is required is a willingness to see these two ways of being in the world, to anchoring our life based on outer reality, which is what 90% of people do 90% of the time. Everything we're going to talk about for the next seven weeks or the next seven months is going to be incredibly simple. This is an incredibly simple idea. But it's very difficult because, as you were saying earlier, we've been conditioned with all of these patterns, both multi-generational patterns and also conditioning in this lifetime from our families of origin, from our schools, from education, from religion, etc., etc. And the dominant zeitgeist in every country on the planet is that we live based on outer reality. And so something happens, someone says something, someone doesn't say something, and we feel hurt or rejected or upset. And in this way, as you've often heard me say, we're like a cork bobbing on the ocean because we're utterly dependent upon what is going to happen in the next moment or in the next day. And that is what Deepak refers to as object referral. We are anchoring our life in the external world. And, you know, I've done that for many decades and I can vouch for the fact that that creates a lot of misery, a lot of unhappiness a lot of frustration, a lot of anger, and so on and so on. And I don't think I've yet to meet anyone that can genuinely say that anchoring ourselves in the outer world leads to happiness or peace of mind or joy. You might have momentarily a moment of joy, a moment of peace, but it's it's short-lived because the nature of the external world is that it's all transitory. It's all very, very impermanent. Yeah, exactly. And whereas the inner world, and this is something that we have to learn from experience, the inner world of potentiality is limitless and it is vast 
it is pure potential. So our inner self is actually, sometimes people use the terms consciousness. Our inner self is actually a field of pure potentiality. So it's from this inner world we can create anything that we want. It's, it's interesting that in, in the Bible, as well as many other religious texts, we find this expression, be still and know that I am God. Be still yeah. and know that I am God. And one of the things that Deepak Chopra talks about, and certainly it would be my experience, that one of the precursors to living from self-referral and anchoring ourselves on the inner world is to create silence or stillness. You know, if you imagine, and we're all very familiar with this, I'm very familiar with this, the outer world tends to sort of gobble us up a little bit. We, we get up in the morning and in yeah. most families, we're off and running for making breakfast, for doing this, doing that, walking the dogs. And, and it's this relentless sort of, people talk about the treadmill of life. And as long as we're on that treadmill, we're never going to understand this first principle. And the gateway and the portal to understanding our essence, it's really our essence, which is consciousness or pure potentiality. It's like an infinite field of possibility. And once we touch that, there's no going back because we experience the power of this inner world. And when we anchor ourselves in that inner world, which many of us are seeking to do at the moment, and of course it takes practice, it takes daily practice. And one of the things that my wife and I have started doing in the last few months, we every morning and every evening, we have a brief period of silence or stillness together. And as we do that on a regular basis, it becomes much more natural, it becomes much easier, it becomes a more familiar place. Can I just ask you while you talked about this, because it's very important for me to learn from this. When you do these moments of silence, I'm sure like everyone that has tried to meditate before or being in that silence, you have immediately thousands of thoughts that come to, to your mind while you're in that silence. Do you just breathe through them and count your breathing to come back to that emptiness, to that place of silence? How do you deal with that juggle? It's a great question. And I think too many people imagine that if we start a spiritual practice of meditation or silence or stillness, that somehow we suddenly drop into that and it's game, game over. So yeah. I'm really glad you've mentioned exactly. this because it's not like that at all. And I think different people find different things helpful. So I wouldn't want to be prescriptive to anyone else. But for me personally, I, I'm very used now to depending upon what's gone on in the hours or minutes before I sit, um, thoughts will arise. Yeah. And if I've been disturbed by something, then maybe 
the thoughts are a little stronger or a little more active. And what I try to do is the first thing to do is to try not to resist the thoughts. So if we try to resist the thoughts or push them away, they just become stronger. So the first thing we do is just bring awareness to them and we watch them. And so watching thoughts arise is a very effective way of giving them less power. It's a little bit like one of the analogies that I often use, which has been used by many other people. It's like watching clouds pass through the sky. And that it's like everything else, which you know, Lara, it's like going to the gym and exercising. It's just a practice and it takes a certain amount of practice. And you mentioned something else there, which I also use, which is the breath. So a very useful thing when you decide to quieten the mind or to sit in stillness or silence is to start to breathe a little bit more deeply and to bring more awareness or consciousness to the breath. And even taking three or four deep breaths and bringing awareness to the way the breath comes into the body and the way you return that breath to the atmosphere will quieten the mind and quieten the thoughts very, very considerably. And, you know, this is not about being perfect. This is not about another egoic practice. I, you know, I've met many people in my life who meditate and are proud of the way they meditate. And it's just become another egoic practice. So we're talking about... Exactly, and discourage others when they talk about it. Yeah, I always say to people, start with five or 10 minutes. People who are in a a corporate environment, I say, if you're stressed, go to the lavatory and and sit on the leaf for five minutes and breathe. And just that willingness Mm -hmm. to step out of the frenetic outer world and connect with something inside will change the day you're having. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I feel there is, for me, for example, there there is a connection with a part of me that is completely forgotten when I am on the treadmill, to use your example. When I'm taken by life, going on my crazy daily chores and, and activities, I forget that part of me that I only find when I try to sit in in that silence. And I think it's from that place that you see better, you can use the law of pure potentiality. I think that's exactly right. That's exactly the same as my own experience. And what we learn quite quickly is when we touch this inner space, is we have the experience that in this inner space, we are immune from criticism. We're immune to rejection. So I I know you've experienced this and and I experience it every day of my life that we can feel ruffled or devastated by a rejection or, you know, some sort of insult. And then we sit with the silence and, and when we drop into the silence, it evaporates. And actually in the silence, there is no wound, there is no hurt, there is no rejection. And various people throughout history, great teachers, have really referred to this in their own way. They've taught this and it's taken us a long time 
to learn this and to begin to live our life. Some cultures, some particularly indigenous cultures like the yogis or the Hopi elders or the aboriginals, they knew this stuff intuitively and they lived their lives by this stuff. They were very anchored in the inner world, the world of dreams, the world of consciousness, and, yeah. and they understood this. So really, it's a return to some of the older ways of living. But one of the things that I think is essential to understand is the prerequisite to this first law. And this is a law of the universe like gravity, like the Heisenberg principle. It's understanding that once we become familiar with Mm -hmm. our inner self, our inner field of pure potentiality or limitless possibility, we live and create a completely different life. And anyone who's ever practiced this, and I know hundreds of people that have, will say the same thing. They've discovered this to be true for themselves. And the prerequisite is silence or stillness. Now, I've said for many years that some people discover this through a hobby. I I have a friend of mine who makes wooden aeroplanes and spends hours Mm. actually on his own, in his den, or people do gardening. People find gardening very, very relaxing. They lose themselves in the gardening or people walking in nature. And and then there's many other practices like Qigong and Tai Chi. So... There's no one way of finding our inner stillness. I think that's the point. Once you understand that the point of this first suggestion would be to reach that place in you that is bigger, different to the one that is living frantically every day, like in a crazy lifestyle and lost a little bit, And you realize that there is another part of you, actually, that is, I want to say bigger, but uh, because I'm referring to a little passage of the book, if you don't mind, I just want to read one line. Of course. It says, knowing who we really are gives us the ability to fulfill any dream we have, because the same field that nature uses to create a forest, a galaxy, or a human body can also bring about the fulfillment of our desires. And I think that's the part, you know, once we reconnect, re-acknowledge that part of us, this is the one we can only get in touch with in silence or in any of these activities that you mentioned, because it gives, it leads to the same place. As you were reading that, it's so beautiful, isn't it? I found my whole being expanding as you were reading that. It's the most beautiful passage. And it's true that every forest and every galaxy was created from this field of pure potentiality. And for me, I'm not yet in the business of creating galaxies or forests. (laughs) Me neither. (laughs) But I I would like to create a little more joy, joy, a little more peace, a little more intimacy, you know, et cetera, et cetera, in my life. And I've been using this law, this principle for 
probably 20 years or more. I understand it, and yet I've got a long way to go with it. One of the entry points to this, which I find very useful because you referred to it earlier, is that the way we live our life and the way we get caught up in life is the outer world of houses and cars and businesses and people seems like it's vast. You know, we, you've got countries like India with, I don't know, one and a half billion people with China, all of this. It feels like the oceans and the planet is enormous. But mm -hmm. what we know to be true from science is that that is less than 2%. Yeah. So it, yeah. It, the yeah. entry point for me is understanding that all of that is insignificant. It's yeah. truly insignificant compared to the unmanifest world of pure potentiality. And in, in the Vedas, they say, you know, in the beginning, there was neither existence nor non-existence but everything was unmanifest energy. And, and that's what physicists, and in particular quantum field theory theorists, are now saying the same thing. So it's yeah. a little bit difficult for us to understand, but truly that what we're talking about, which is unfamiliar, the inner world, the world of pure potentiality, is vast compared to the galaxy compared to yeah. Knightsbridge or South Kensington or India or wherever. So, you know, we need to understand this. And the only way to understand it is through experience. Reading 28 books about this is not going to help greatly. So mm -hmm. it starts with touching that vast world of stillness and silence within yeah. us. And reaching that part of you that is greater than all of it, all of this external things that you do and associate with. Because I think this law of pure potentiality is clearly saying that we are much bigger than what we think and we live on a daily basis. We are consciousness ourselves. And this is the place where you can do miracles, basically. Maybe we're not you and I creating galaxies, but I can tell you very honestly, Andrew, and this is why I was very excited to be able to share this with as many people as we can, because just the fact that 80% of the time, maybe 70, so I don't feel I'm exaggerating, I feel very blissfully unsatisfied by even the life I'm living at the moment, but I observe it all, I live it all with a certain peace and bliss has made me realize that by doing this exercise of going into silence every day and understanding the real root of who I am has helped me reach that stage. And I've, I've witnessed that in you. I've had the privilege to witness that and see the change. And sometimes we uh, need to see that in others because it has greater impact than seeing the yeah. change in ourselves. But it's absolutely right. And all of us, we are works in progress. And I think all of us are novices in learning to live 
a different life and create a different life around us. So as more people embody this and encapsulate this, we begin to create a completely different world. For me, this is, it's like gravity. It's like any other principles, Isaac Newton's laws of motion. This is how the world works. And for whatever reason, you know, we've been conditioned into another way that has got us to where we are now. The world is a mess, you know, it's full of conflict, it's full of disease, it's full of poverty. And it doesn't Mm -hmm. need to be like that. And this is the way we begin to create an alternative Mm -hmm. world. And it starts with you and me. Yeah, exactly. That's the beauty of it. Beauty. We don't have to be perfect. We're we're novices at the moment, Lara, but I think when we get to the advanced course, we will start creating galaxies. I think that's... (laughs) (laughs) Probably. The great great thing is to... um... I don't know. I think I'm discovering what freedom really means, Andrew. And it's quite, I'm still, you know, not believing that with me forever, but I'm I'm now every day realizing, oh, it's still here. I still feel really freer than ever because nothing has the same impact on me because, you know, I, I, I don't give that power to anything or anyone anymore. And I think that's that I got by just getting every day, like it's like giving a, an appointment to this bigger self, inner self, consciousness, divine self. You have so many words for it. The only way to get in touch with it is to go deep in and to go in silence. I'm not sure if you were going to touch a little bit on this sense of not judgment, to practice not judging and try to not have a strong opinion on what others do or how others act towards us or towards life in general. I find that still very difficult. Yeah. And I was wondering if you could explain to me the difference between non-judgment and just having your own opinion. So can I come back to that in one moment? Because I just want to say two other things based on what you were explaining earlier, which I completely agree with. And that is that, you know, what I notice pretty much every day of my life is that I can be in the kitchen making a cup of tea and I can feel completely at peace with myself and completely fulfilled and knowing that everything in my life is beautiful. And then five minutes later or two hours later, I feel fear in my body or I feel uh, anxiety or I feel dread. And Mm. what I notice is nothing has changed. And then an hour after that, I can return to the sense of peace And then again, I notice nothing has changed. So there might have been an email, there might have been a telephone call, but all of the circumstances of my life remain unaltered. And for me, this is a very helpful and valuable experience because the more we notice this, the more we have to concede that the only difference in all of these experiences throughout a day is the inner 
experience. It's nothing outer has changed. And once we really experience that, we become more interested and more committed to changing our relationship to the inner. That's the first thing. And then the second thing I just wanted to say is lots of people from different cultures and different traditions have a different language for this inner world. So for some people, we've been talking about it in quite a neutral way by referring to it as silence or stillness. And, And many people experience it like a big night sky or the depths of an ocean or whatever. Mm-hmm. And other people, of course, give it a more spiritual or religious meaning. So for me, personally, I do think that when we connect deeply within, we are experiencing the divine, we are experiencing our divine essence. And yes, it was Tayard de Chardin who said, You know, we have to decide whether we're human beings having a spiritual experience or spiritual beings having a human experience. And of course, it doesn't really matter. But the more we explore the vast depths of our inner resource, which is the unmanifest energy in the universe, the more we realize that we are part of the divinity itself. But if we don't want to put that connotation on it, that's absolutely fine. We just talk about inner stillness, inner silence, which is incredibly peaceful. And again, in the Bible, it says a peace that passes all understanding and and different traditions have the same or or slightly different language for this experience. So in terms of judgment, we, we could just end up with that is all of us have judgment all of the time so something happens that we're not expecting to happen or someone says something we don't know what they're going to say we immediately have a judgment about it and in my experience people who try to be non-judgmental do one of two things they either suppress all the judgment so they pretend that they're not judgmental, which is really unhelpful, I think. Yeah. Or alternatively, they find themselves being more and more judgmental all the time. That the moment you decide to be non-judgmental, one yes. of those two things yeah. happens. One of the things that I found incredibly helpful, uh, and this is a, a really beautiful practice that we can do You can just do it one afternoon or do it for a day, do it every other day. But when I find myself judging someone like she's a hypocrite or God, he's dishonest, or I just add these three simple words whenever the judgment arises. And then I say to myself, just like me, just like me. Mm. So I think she's dishonest, just like me. My goodness, she's angry, just like me. She's a hypocrite, just like me. She's incredibly sarcastic, just like me. Because one of the functions of being judgmental is we separate ourselves from the characteristic we're judging. So when we say she's a hypocrite, what we're really saying is not like me. We're trying to distance ourselves from that experience. If somebody is very aloof, We said, my goodness, I found her so aloof. We're pretending that I'm not like that. 
So this yeah. is a very simple device, which I've used in my life time and time again. In fact, I was revisiting it recently. Is just having the willingness and the humility to add. We're not trying to push the judgment away. We're not trying to change or transform the judgment. We're just saying, just like me, we're recognizing that whatever I'm judging in the other is something that is present in me, which I'm trying to suppress yeah. in myself. But Andrew, is it right to say, I totally now get this, took me years, but now I get mm-hmm. it, that just like me. Just like me. But I just would like to add, because it took me so long to reach there, that if I can help someone, not wasting so much time. Yes, I'm acknowledging it is in me what I'm seeing that I either dislike or not want to see. But I also can choose, even though I admit it's in me, I can choose not to use it, not to act from that place. Do you know what I'm trying to say? Like if, for example, I'm talking about a a hypocrite person, a hypocrite, I can just say, oh, she's such a hypocrite, just like me, knowing that I act from a place where I choose not to use this hypocrisy. Do you know what I'm trying to yeah, say? Yeah, no, I absolutely. And this is, this is not terribly well understood because I think there's a, a process. The first stage or first step of the process is an awareness in me. So as you said yourself, Laura, that, you know, five, six years ago, I would say to you, that this is in you and you, you used to be upset or yeah. defend and you think, no, 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 you know. <laughs> so we, we've all been there. I've been through that. I still go there, by the way. <laughs> so so, so um, the first step is a genuine awareness that what is disturbing me in the other person is present in me. That's the first thing. Once I acknowledge that it's present in me, it won't disturb me and someone else. So the the, the, the okay. greatest lit, litmus test is if I'm in a group or I'm talking to people and I feel troubled or, or disturbed by something in them, then I, I'm, I don't have sufficient awareness of that in me. The second yes. stage, yes. exactly as you said, once I've got the awareness... Yes. And I, I'm not judging it in you, rather I'm compassionate with you because I think, oh my God, mm, Lara's a hypocrite. I'm a complete hypocrite yeah. and I, you know, I understand that. Then mm. I have freedom to choose not to be a hypocrite. Yes, yeah. that's, it. that's it. Now I bucket that. Because <laughs> the first time I was talking to you about someone that I found hypocrite and that you re- replied to me that I was a hypocrite too, I just was, okay, I'm never going to see Andrew again. That's it. <laughs> but we both know that it only lasted a day or two and then I called you again. Uh, and I understood why you said that. And it just took me a bit. It was a relief to understand it because, you know, yes, it is in me. I have a lot of compassion because I'm seeing it in you. I don't really want to be that. I have the freedom and to choose from the from where I am, from my awareness, from my acknowledgement of being free to choose to be that or not, and choose because very often a hypocrite would I don't know react to something from the external world happening to her or to him, and that comes back to the first sentence you were starting this 
podcast with saying that we turn more towards our inner world rather than turning towards the outer world and what's going on outside of ourselves. I mean, for me, it's it's freedom. It's complete freedom. I'll give you, I, I think I've used this example recently with you, but it, it was a very useful one for me because when Russia invaded Ukraine, I had various clients and things and yeah. it's the most horrific and barbaric situation with with horrible stuff going on. And the thing is, we can talk about that for uh, hours or weeks or months. We can get sucked into that. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't be active in voicing our concern over that. But I always say to people, what about the inner dictator in you? Yeah. And, yeah. and once we introduce that, then most people who are interested in evolution can find their inner dictator and take responsibility for it, but not act out on it, choose to do something different. I think that applies to everything. And it, it develops from being willing to practice this familiarity with inner stillness or silence. And by the way, Lara, it's really important to say that whenever I enter into, this is now a daily practice for me, but whenever I decide to do a practice like this, you cannot believe the amount of resistance I have to it, just as sitting in silence for 10 or 15 minutes a day. When you make that decision, you will find all sorts of reasons not to do it. Of course. Oh <laughs> you know. I have that every day. Yeah. So the next time we will meet Andrew, we will be talking about the second law, the law of giving and receiving. I think, to be honest with you, it's my favorite law. (laughs) One, because for years I thought that by giving, giving, giving myself, I could make the whole world love me so much and fill in all the gaps that I had in me. So I I can't wait to be talking about that and the importance of receiving as well as giving, which also is something I took very long to understand. So I truly look forward to that. Thank you again so much for this time you gave me. And I hope you have a great day and I'll see you next time. Thank you so much. Bless you. Thank you so much. Andrew. God bless. Bye bye. Thank you all so much for listening to my conversation with Andrew about the first law, the law of pure potentiality of the seven spiritual laws of success of Deepak Chopra. I hope you will join us next time for discussing the second law. And please, please share this with as many people as you think would benefit from my conversation with Andrew. I wish you all a wonderful day. Till next time. Bye-bye.